0: following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. So, we're in the book of Exodus. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. We've been... Uh, we started the series a couple of weeks ago. We've looked at an overview of the book of Exodus and the big story of the Bible. Uh, we've looked at chapter one in Exodus and the situation of the Israelites uh, oppressed in Egypt under Pharaoh, uh, made to be slaves and forced uh, into slavery, and the targets of genocide policies, really, by Pharaoh. So, chapter one in Exodus that we've looked at, chapter, chapter one really sets up the, the problem. That the rest of the whole book of Exodus addresses. Chapter 1 is the problem. Chapter 2 onwards is the solution. So when we get to chapter 2, as we are today, this is really the beginning of the salvation story within Exodus. It's the beginning of the answer. It's the beginning of the redemptive thread that's going to run through the rest of the book. So we're going to take just 10 verses, 10 short verses in Exodus 2, and look at this well-known story of Moses' birth. And the early months of Moses' life. Exodus chapter 2. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, It's a very well-known story, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. And uh, this is the point at the beginning of Exodus 2, where the story really narrows in. In Exodus 1, if you remember, it, it was very broad, this sense of all the Israelites under oppression, a huge clan, a huge people group. But now the story starts to focus, and it narrows down and down and down to one particular Hebrew family. And this becomes the family that carries forward the storyline of Exodus. At this point, we're not told the name of the husband and wife here, but we are told later on. The husband's name is Amram, and the wife's name is Jochebed. They are the parents of Moses. They already have, at this point, two kids. They have a little daughter, a little girl, Miriam. She's about between 6 and 12 years old at this point. And they have a little boy, Aaron, and he's 3. At this point, both of them will become significant people in the story of Exodus too as the story goes along. Now, Aaron's life's not in any danger. He's three years old. Pharaoh's policy is only targeting newborn babies, so Aaron's okay. But then Jochebed gets pregnant and she has another baby, and it's a boy. This is the baby that would grow up to be named Moses. So Moses is born into a situation of immediate danger. He's born and his life is immediately under threat from the genocidal policies of Egypt. And so for the first few months of his life, Jochebed and Amram try to hide him away in the house. And just imagine what this must have been like for them for a minute. I mean, it's hard enough, isn't it, dealing with a newborn baby. Some of you are in that space right now. You've got a baby less than three months old. It's exhausting work. But imagine how infinitely harder it would have been for Amram and Jochebed Every time they hear footsteps outside, they wonder, is it, is it an Egyptian soldier? Is it a spy come to forcibly take our baby away? Every time the baby cries, she would have had to race to try and quieten him down, muffle his cries for fear that he's going to be taken away and mercilessly thrown into the Nile River. These are the conditions that this family was living under. It would have been painstaking, nerve-wracking work. And interestingly, this, this act, this humble act of looking after their son, trying to protect his life, it becomes recognized as one of the great acts of faith in the whole history of Israel. In Hebrews 11, which is this great roll call of faith through the story of the Old Testament, Amram and Jochebed are there. They show up in Hebrews 11. They're not mentioned by name, but in Hebrews 11:23 it says, By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. It's interesting that the actions of Amram and Jochebed are specifically described as being actions of faith, not just good parenting. I mean, they were trying to be the best parents that they could. They were trying to save the life of their boy. But there's something else going on here. This is an act of faith toward God, an act of faith in God that somehow they knew in spite of their circumstances, God was in control, that God was working out some sort of a plan, that God had a redemptive story. And they they believed somehow that Moses was part of that. We don't quite know how, but they, they looked at Moses, and Hebrews tells us they saw that he was no ordinary child. So they had this premonition that there was a sense of destiny about this baby that God somehow gave them that premonition. This baby is going to be used. He's going to be special. He's somehow going to be part of the significance of what God is doing here, even in this awful circumstance. And if you come back to Exodus 2, you get a little hint of what that plan was and the bigger story that's going on here. In the equivalent verse in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, when she saw, that's Moses' mother, when she saw that he was a fine child... She hid him for three months. Now, when I ever read that phrase, she saw that he was a fine child, I just thought it meant she thought he was a good-looking baby. And everybody thinks their baby's the best-looking baby in the world. So I I thought, no surprises there. Pass it by. But the word for fine, she saw that he was a fine child, that word is the Hebrew word tobe. And often in the Old Testament, it's translated as good. It's the same word, that's used seven times in Genesis 1 when God looks at what he's made and says it is good. Isn't that interesting? And God makes humanity and looks at Adam and Eve and says they are very tobe, very good. There's a link here, another link I think, back to the creation story. Remember we talked last week about how there's all these links, all these hints in Exodus, there's a bigger story going on here. Just as God created humanity and called them good and made them his agents of creativity and rule within the world, now God puts his hand in a sense on this little baby and through his mother declares that he is good and he's going to use this baby for the renewing of Humanity, for the salvation ultimately of all humanity, all nations, another human being in which salvation is being worked out, in which God's plans are coming to fruition. Another link, there's a big story going on here. It's not just a story about Moses, not just a story about Israel. This is a story about humanity, God's purposes for humanity moving forward. Okay, so back to the story. I know you're getting excited about that. Back to the story, though. After three months, Moses' mum and dad can't hide him in the house anymore. He's too big and he's too noisy. They have to do something else. And so Moses' mother takes this extraordinary step in the story that's become famous. She, she places little baby Moses in a Moses basket. All right, They probably weren't called Moses baskets, but it's quite a coincidence that she found a basket named after her son. So she places him in this basket, which, which really I think was more like a box. Uh, interestingly, the word for basket is the word the Hebrew word teba. And guess what that's translated as sometimes? Ark. Oh, this is good stuff. Ark. So here's a link back to Genesis and the Noah story. That God has instructed Noah to build an ark, which becomes a vehicle of salvation for humanity. And now God creates another little ark. He gets Jochebed to create a little ark. With only one passenger, no animals, just a little baby. But again, it is a vehicle of salvation. Floating down the Nile River, just like Noah's Ark, carrying the hopes of humanity with it. It is just the same. There's a salvation story going on here. Can you hear that? These links are intentional. So there's a tabah, there's a box. And uh, Moses' mother coats it with this kind of tar uh, substance so that it's waterproofed. She places Moses in the basket and sends him off down the Nile River. Now we kind of have, at least I have, kind of imagined that when Moses' mum sends him off down the Nile River, it's sort of this act of complete fatalism. That she just, no idea what's going to happen, just sort of sends him off and just hopes for the best. But I think, when you read the text closely here, I think Jochebed was pretty crafty. I think she knew. I mean, obviously God had a plan here. I think Jochebed had a bit of a plan too, though, going on. She would have known where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. She probably positioned herself conveniently upstream and angled the basket, the tabar, just right so that it crossed. I mean, it was still a long shot, but I think she had a plan that it crossed the path of Pharaoh's daughter, just as she was bathing. And then you see Pharaoh's daughter opens up the, the basket, the tabah, And who pops up right on cue? Miriam. Bang. Just happened to be there. Miriam pops up. Hello. Would you like one of the Hebrews, the Hebrew woman, to take this child? Well, I just happened to know one. And then she gets her mum, Jochebed, who just happens to. It's all very convenient, isn't it? I, Jochebed, I think, had this mapped out. In her mind. And when you think about it, this actually ends, at least at this point of the story, reasonably well for Jochebed. She has her own son back. She doesn't really own him anymore because now he's officially the, daughter of, uh, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. But she's still able to raise Moses for several years, probably in her own home as, as her son. And she gets a bit of pocket money for doing it. Pharaoh's daughter says, I'll pay you. To take care of Moses. So, this, this works out reasonably well, I think, for Jochebed. It was a pretty crafty plan. As you read this story, though, just a short narrative in Exodus, but you have a sense that there's a real juxtaposing going on here. On the one hand, there's a sense of the bigness of God's plan, this huge plan that this is a story far bigger than Moses. This is a story about humanity and creation, this is a cosmic plan. Of salvation that's being outworked here. And yet, on the other hand, the plan is coming about in the most humble way, in the most risky kind of way. All of our futures at this moment in the biblical story are hanging on a baby in a basket floating down the Nile River. This plan, this great plan of salvation is vulnerable and fragile at every single point along the way. The plan of salvation through a baby in the basket. And this just seems to be the way that God loves to work. And you see it, we will see it time and time again through Exodus. It's like God loves creating these impossible situations. He just orchestrates the most unlikely circumstances, the, the situation of ultimate weakness, so that he can display his power, so that, he can display his, so that there'll be no question that this is God and not any kind of human effort. God, one writer says God is attracted to weakness. It's like these situations of hopelessness are just magnetic for God. He moves towards them because these are the ways in which he chooses to display his power. And we see this time and time again through Exodus. We see this time and time again through the biblical story. We see this in the life of Jesus. And there are some interesting parallels between the birth of Moses and the birth of Jesus you think about it, both babies born under rulers who were trying to have babies killed. Pharaoh's got a policy to throw all the baby boys in the Nile. And then Jesus is born under King Herod, who's got a policy to kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem under two years old. People have noted these similarities of circumstance. And then Moses' parents, in response to this, they hide him away in their house in Egypt. What did Jesus' parents do? They take him to Egypt as a, boy, as a baby. Jesus probably spent months of the first year of his life as a refugee baby in Egypt. So for the first years of their life, both Moses and Jesus spend time in Egypt and both become used as deliverers. Obviously, Jesus in a far more significant way, but both of them born in humility, born as underdogs, born with very little chance at life in a lot of ways, and yet both of them used as deliverers of God's people, deliverers of humanity. Kind of reminds you of that verse in the Bible that says, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God uses the lowly things, the poor things, the humble things, the fragile things. He uses the weak things of the world. He used this little baby in a basket ultimately to bring down an emperor and his army. And he used Jesus, born in, in, in awful circumstances, born in humility, ultimately. To accomplish redemption for humanity. That that verse, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. What event is it ultimately looking towards? The cross. That's really the demonstration of where God used the weakness of the world to accomplish his purposes. It's on the cross that we see ultimate weakness, ultimate humiliation, and yet God uses it for ultimate good. God brings life. God uses the cross to defeat the power of sin and death and Satan and bring life and bring hope and bring redemption. This is a pattern right through Scripture. What we see in Exodus 2 of God using the weak things of the world to accomplish His purpose, to move His story forward, it's a pattern, a discernible pattern of how God works through the biblical story and how He works in our lives today. God is still using the weak things of the world, to shame the strong. He's still using the weak things. He's still using the weak people. He's still using the situations of weakness, the circumstances where we struggle, the circumstances where we're not in control. God is still using those people, those situations, to accomplish His purposes, to shape our hearts. To move his story forward, God loves to work through human weakness. And I think that requires us, I think the story requires us to take a different view of weakness in our lives than what we usually take. Because typically, what we want to do is see the Christian life as a journey out of weakness and into strength. Don't we? That's what we want, that's what we think God wants out of weakness, into strength, that surely what, what God wants more than anything is to get me out of this situation here and get me into a position where I'm stronger. So out of sickness and into health, out of financial distress, into financial security, out of a messed up relationship, into a healthy relationship over here, out of mental illness, into mental health. And we assume the only good thing God could do would be to get me out of this weakness. The only valuable thing God could do would be to deliver me. And so we talk with all this language about how we're going to move this mountain if we just have enough faith. And we're going to be overcomers. And we're going to live this victorious Christian life. And I'm going to say, you know, God is going to get me out of this situation. He's going to get me into this other strong situation. We have this lens where we only see weakness as bad. It's a problem to be solved. It's an obstacle to be removed. And as long as we have that lens, we miss the most important thing God's doing in our lives. We miss the most important work that He's doing. Yes, God wants us to be whole. Yes, He gives us good gifts sometimes. Yes, He invites us to pray and to plead for healing, for recovery, for intervention, whatever it is. But here's the thing. The Christian life is not a journey from weakness to strength. It's a journey of discovering God's strength in weakness. It's a journey of discovering the strength and the grace and the power of God in the middle of your weakness. Not once it gets better. Not once the problem's gone, not once life's good again, but in the middle of your weakness. That is the gospel. It is strength in weakness. It is honor in shame. It is wisdom in foolishness. It is resurrection in the midst of death. There's a paradox to it, but this is the Christian life that we discover, the grace of God. The greatest gift, the greatest grace God is going to give you is not to remove your weaknesses, but to make himself present in the midst of weakness and show you strength and pour grace into your life whether or not things get better tomorrow. I know that might not be the message you want to hear. It's not the triumphalism of a lot of contemporary Christianity, but it is the gospel. Strength and weakness. I caught up with a friend this last week who's gone through some real health troubles. He's had big seasons of his life where he's been very debilitated by a major health issue. He's doing well now, but long, long times, years of his life where he's really struggled away. And he was sharing with me this metaphor, this picture, that he's used to help him think through God's strength in the midst of his weakness. He talked about this, this form of Japanese pottery called kintsugi. It's actually a form of Japanese repairing of pottery. And so what it does, it takes a, a broken piece of pottery, let's say a vase, a jar, whatever it is, a bowl, And it repairs this pottery using a particular substance. And the substance that it uses contains gold, silver, and platinum. The the method does not involve covering over the cracks and disguising them like they're not there. But pouring the substance, rubbing the substance into the the breakage of the vessel in a way that strengthens the crack and repairs it, but in the process highlights it and actually fills it with, with gold. And creates beauty. So the finished product—you can see it there. Can you see the cracks? That's the breakage in this vessel. And and the whole philosophy of kintsugi is this breakage and these cracks. That's part of the history of the vessel, and that is not a history to be ignored, or to be covered up. It's a history to be respected, and it's something to be paid tribute to. So in the end, the beauty of the vessel is in the brokenness the beauty of the vessel includes the brokenness and the incompleteness and the cracks. Isn't that a rich metaphor for the Christian life? Reminds me of an old song I used to sing in church, something beautiful, something good. All my confusion, he understood. All I had to offer him was brokenness and strife, but he made something beautiful out of my life a beauty that includes the brokenness. We come to God in our lives with all kinds of broken pieces, broken marriage, broken family, broken interior worlds, broken hearts. And what God does, He doesn't cover over that stuff. He doesn't just pretend like it doesn't exist or just take it away. But He pours His Spirit into our lives in such a way that it fills the cracks and repairs us But it strengthens us by grace so that we become beauty in brokenness. And the masterpiece of our lives includes the weaknesses. In a sense, they are highlighted. We are repaired, but our woundedness and our brokenness is not taken away. It's filled with grace. Not taken away, but filled with beauty. We are made whole, but we're made whole as broken vessels. That's the reality of this. Now, one day in the new creation, we will be fully whole and fully repaired, but we've got to respect that 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 day still awaits us. In the present, we are beautiful, broken people that God is mending and healing, but sometimes still highlighting the cracks and the weaknesses in our life. I know this is hard to get your head and your heart around because the things in our life that are struggles and weakness, they don't feel like gold. I don't feel like it could be part of any sort of beauty, but I think this requires us looking again at the weakness in your life and saying, what is God doing in the midst of my weakness? Am I so focused on God getting me out of this situation, out of the frustration, out of the struggle, that I'm missing something? And maybe God's saying to you, I want to show you some things about myself right now, in the midst of your grief, in the midst of the dysfunction of this relationship. I've got things to teach you. Don't be in such a rush to get out of it. I've got things to teach you. I want to show you some things about yourself. I want to show you who you are. I want to strip away some pride. I want to strip away some self-reliance. I want to strip away some self-sufficiency. I want to bring you to a point where all you have is my grace. And you can rest securely in the sufficiency of who I am. That's what God wants to do in your life. Can you be attentive to what the Spirit of God is doing right now in the midst of your weakness, regardless of whether it gets better or worse tomorrow? That's a hard question. And I think it requires from us the same kind of thing that God required of Jochebed. If you come back to the story in Exodus 2, twice in this story, Jochebed has to give Moses up. The first time is on the Nile River. She puts him in the basket See, so sends the tibah down the, down the Nile River. She has to give him up. Doesn't know She had a plan, but she didn't know. But the second time I think is even harder for Jochebed. You look over in verse 10. With real brevity, this verse describes, I think, something that would have been very anguishing for Jochebed. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. So here, some of you have fostered children, and you get a glimpse of this. That you know what it is to have a child that you raise as your own for months or years, and then you've got to give them away. The anguish that goes along with that. But imagine his Jochebed, and this is her own son. This is her own biological son. And when he's older, maybe 11, 12, 13, she has to give him away to Pharaoh's daughter. She has to give him away to the daughter of the man who's oppressing her people, who is seeking to kill the babies of her people, and surrender, them to the, surrender him to the Egyptian court, not knowing how his life's going to turn out, not knowing whether he'll be turned against his own people, doesn't know, but she just has to give him away. And I think in some way that symbolizes what God invites us to do with our weakness, what he invites us to do with our brokenness, which is to give it to him. Surrender Our weakness to God. I know that sounds like a bit of a Christian cliche, but I think it's vitally important that we get to a point where we can lay down the burdens that we are carrying, the weakness in our life, in an act of spiritual surrender, and we hand it over to God because He's already carrying our burdens himself. Psalms says he daily bears our burdens. He's already carrying them. And we we need to go through this process often several times of laying down that struggle. I've had to go through this in my life. One of my many struggles is that I have a kind of a, a social inhibition at times. It's a funny thing to talk about. I feel a bit embarrassed talking about it. But, you know, I, I enjoy preaching in this kind of environment. And in some ways, I feel quite comfortable here. But in other circumstances and other social settings, at times, I feel quite socially inhibited. feel quite socially insecure. It's a strange thing, and it crops up in my life from time to time and in different settings. And I've struggled with it. For a long time and wrestled with God over it. And I feel I can relate to the struggle of the Apostle Paul who talked about his thorn in the flesh. Some of you know that passage, this thorn in the flesh. And that's one of my thorns in the flesh. I feel like I've got a whole thorn bush, to be honest. But that's one of my thorns in the flesh. And I've wrestled with God about it. And I've prayed more than three times. Paul only prayed three times, he tells us, for it to be taken away. I prayed a lot more than that for God to take this thing away because that's what we want, isn't it? That's what we pray. God, take this away from me. I can't see any value in this. I need to be stronger. Please take this away. And I've prayed that prayer. But I think in not so many words, but in just the quietness of his spirit's impression on my heart, God has said to me the same thing he said to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you. Because what's the next line? My power is made perfect in weakness. That's a hard truth to understand. And Paul says, I'm going to delight in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I am strong. And I've got to confess, I don't really know the truth of that verse in my life. I pray that one day I will, but I don't know that yet. I mean, I understand it on an intellectual level, but I don't experience the truth of that in my life Yet, because I feel like when I'm confident, then I'm strong. When I'm competent, then I'm strong. But not when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Nobody feels like that. Hey, this isn't that one of these verses we nod our heads at like good Christians, and we don't have the first idea what that actually means in our life because we still think when I'm strong, then I'm strong. We don't. I don't experience that paradox. In my, when I'm weak, I don't. There's no value. I don't think in this weakness in my life, but somehow in God's eyes there is. Somehow he's saying to me, when you're weak, then you're strong. And so you need to hand this weakness over to me. And stop putting pressure on yourself. And stop beating yourself up about it. See, that's what I'm so prone to do, is beat myself up. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? A very wise counselor who's in this room once told me, you've got to put down the stick that you are beating yourself up with. Self-bullying is the worst form of bullying, that we because of our weaknesses, we just beat ourselves, beat ourselves, got to be better. We put all this pressure on ourselves to be more confident, to be more competent, to be whatever it is we think we should be, depending on the weakness in our life. And it just cripples us and we end up in despair. We've got to put down the stick. No more self-bullying. We've got to learn some self-acceptance. We've got to come to the cross and find that God loves us more than we could possibly imagine. He accepts us in our weakness. He invites us to hand our weaknesses over to Him and let them go. And just be okay with the brokenness. I'm not talking about just being okay with sin in your life. Yes, we need to work against that. But I'm talking about weaknesses that largely you've got no control really over. We can do some things, but there's things we can't always control, at least not quick fixes. I think God would say to us, just put down the stick and just rest in the sufficiency of my grace. I've gained a lot from a writer called Henry Nowen in this whole area. I've quoted him a few times to you guys. And he wrote a book called The Wounded Healer. The title really says says it all. He talks about how our wounds in our life are the very thing that God uses to bring healing and hope to other people. He says this at one point in the book. He who proclaims liberation is called not only to care for his wounds and the wounds of others, but also to make his wounds into a major source of his healing power. So I've really been helped by that because it's enabled me to see that somehow my role among you is as a wounded healer and that I'm going to minister as someone who is wounded, that I don't need to try and cover over my weaknesses, pretend like I've got it all together and put on a good show, that in fact it's in my brokenness. That I minister. And somehow in that brokenness others might receive life. Because Lord willing, they might at least see grace in me. They might at least see my utter dependence on the grace of God every second of my life. And and that if if, if I could be nothing else, I would want to be a parable of grace. A parable of brokenness, but grace filled living. So I want to be that wounded healer. That somehow our woundedness is a source of life to other people because they can see God's grace in us. And this is for you. This is not just for pastors. Can you see yourself? You think about weakness in your life. Think about brokenness. Can you see yourself as a wounded healer? Could it be that you need to be more honest about your weaknesses and a little bit more vulnerable about areas of weakness in your life before others? Areas where you're just trying to put on the mask and it's all impression management and just kind of personal PR? You know, are you willing to say, actually, I'm going to drop the mask. I'm going to see my weakness as strength. I'm going to do what Paul said and delight in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest on me. Because I know somehow, even though I don't experience it, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Can you see yourself as a wounded healer? Because if you let him, God is going to use your own woundedness and brokenness and incompleteness as a blessing to other people. Not because you're pretending you've got it all together, but precisely because you don't. And other people are going to see grace in your life and they're going to see someone who's willing to honestly name their weaknesses and rest in God's grace. And that's what everyone around you needs to see. Not someone fighting to have it all together, but someone who can say, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. A wounded healer. So I want to ask you as we, as we wrap up here, just to think about weakness in your life. Think about the things now where you're experiencing weakness. For some of you, it's all on the inside. It's your headspace, it's heart. It's your soul, you just, there's a real storm going on inside of you. Others, it's an external situation of stress, of frustration, of dysfunction. We're all dealing with weakness right now to a greater or lesser extent. I want to ask you to think about the way you're approaching weakness in your life. Are you still in that place of just seeing weakness purely in negative terms and believing God's got no value for it? And the only redemptive thing God can do is to get me out of this weakness. If that's you, I just want to gently say to you, you are missing the most precious work God's doing in your life that our points of weakness are the points when God does His most precious work. I want to ask you just to open your eyes and begin being attentive to that and see your life as a journey of discovering God's strength and weakness. Can you begin to ask some new questions? Can you begin to ask, God, what are you doing now? How can I experience victory now, even in the midst of defeat, even in the midst of this battle that I'm losing how can I experience your strength? God, what are you doing in my weakness? How are you shaping me? How are you refining me? How are you conforming me to the image of your Son? What are you doing in my life, God? Can you begin to be a little bit more attentive to that? Are you willing to surrender your weaknesses to God? Are you willing to put down the stick? Some of you, like me, are in, engaging in self bullying right now. Are you willing to put down the stick today? to give yourself some grace. God's given you all the grace you need. Often we just don't give it to ourselves. Are you willing today to say, I'm just not going to beat myself up anymore. I'm not going to spend my life doing that. But I'm going to hand my weakness to God. I'm going to own it. I'm going to name it before God and appropriately before others. And can you see your vocation in this life as a wounded healer? And whatever that way that applies to you, that God's grace would work through your wounds and that you might be that beautiful vessel of pottery Repaired and whole, but with cracks of gold. Cracks filled with the grace of Jesus Christ. And to be unashamed of that. To be unashamed of that before God and before other people. Let's pray. Father, you are the God of the broken. You're the friend of the weary. You are the God of the humble. The God of the weak. And just as you brought life out of that little baby in a basket, we pray that somehow, God, you would bring beauty out of our weaknesses. God, as we look at our lives and we look at our hearts, we don't want these weaknesses that we carry around. They just feel like they entangle us and hold us back. But God, we want to confess now, as your people who love you, that you are a God who delights in our weaknesses. Because your grace is sufficient for us. And so God, we want to say to you this morning, whatever's going on in our lives, your grace is sufficient for me. Even if you never answer our prayers, even if we never have more than we have now, or if we have far less, God, if we don't see the miracle, if we don't get the breakthrough, if things don't improve, we are still going to say, your grace is sufficient for me. Because your power is perfected in weakness. Teach us what it means, Lord, that when we are weak, then we are strong. For Christ's sake. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455 Thank you for listening.